Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. We have so many guests on this show making a difference in our lives, making a difference all around the world with the expertise that they bring. And yet so many of you are reaching out to me saying, you want more. It's not enough, just what we're putting on these podcast episodes for you. And so I am here to extend a very warm welcome to you to our Difference Maker community where you can join for as little as $5 a month to get all this extra content out the gate, you're going to get 30 plus minisodes of exclusive content not available for the regular podcast listeners and an exclusive minisode every month. And you'll get exclusive voting power to help us pick podcast topics and more. And that's with our changers tier. There's three different main tiers and then an extra uh, larger tier. But whatever tier that you join at, you will be included in this extra content. And I know that many of you are wanting to go a little bit deeper. And so even though it gets a little wild in there sometimes because of how deep we go, I want you to join us there. This extra content is very special. It means a great deal to me to be a part of this community with you. And I would love to just exchange uh, ideas or perspectives that you have around these different episodes. And that's the place where we do it. So please show up to our Difference Maker community. Give us $5 out of your pocket every month. And I think that you'll have a lot of fun in there because we do. And I would love for you to join us. So go to patreon.com slash a world of difference to join us there. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm Lori Adams-Brown, and this is a podcast for those who are different and want to make a difference. Our guest on today's show is Bindia Schaefer. Bindia is an author, and she has a book that she's written called Corinth 2642 AD, which is a sci-fi thriller that tackles race as a construct. She's a former defense and aerospace journalist. Before moving to the San Francisco Bay Area, where she currently lives, she lived in Dubai, UAE, and Bangalore, India. When she's not writing, she is camping in the California wilderness, where it is gorgeous, and she also writes her books, and her husband and her baby dog are right there by her side. We are so excited to have on today's show, and welcome a very very, very warm welcome to Bindia Schaefer. Hello, Bindia. Welcome to the World of Difference podcast. Hey, Laurie. How's it going? It's going great. I can't believe we're neighbors and we're actually on Zoom. Maybe we'll get to meet in person at some point. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I feel like you're probably just a couple of minutes away from where I live. I, I am. I know. I think I am. So it would be fun to have coffee sometime, but yeah, I would be nice. to know you a little bit and introduce you to the World of Difference podcast listeners everywhere. Um, you have a very global background. So many of us do here on the podcast. And so we'd love to know a little bit about your background and who you are and what you're currently doing. Cool. So I am from India. I, I, I was born there. I grew up there for a little bit. Um, and not long after, I think I was probably like nine or 10. And my family moved to Dubai, to UAE. And I, I fell in love. I lived there for another 10 years before I moved back to India. And while I was in India, I worked as a difference in aerospace journalist. Um, that was quite a challenge being um, a woman in, in India working in a very male dominant industry. And at some point I, I decided, you know, things have got to change. I got to make more money, travel more. And somehow I found myself in California. I got myself a corporate job. I call it moving over to the dark side. <laughs> you know, I quit journalism and went to 
the corporate world. And um, yeah, I've been here four or five years and I write on the side. Yes. So many people here in the Silicon Valley are doing like several things at once. Yeah. It's very common to meet people with what feels like three full-time jobs, sometimes just for practical reasons, because it's so expensive, but other reasons are also just people are very driven here in the Silicon Valley. So I feel like you're a good fit for that. (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, it's true. I feel like ever since I moved here, I'm in this constant state of what else am I doing? What can I be doing? Like, am I doing enough? Is it? Yeah. it's, It's this constant push and pull, the struggle of, you know, what am I doing now that my future self is going to thank me for five, 10 years from now? And, yeah. and that's my constant state of mind now. Yes, I know, isn't it, for so many of us? And COVID yeah. sort of really threw that into a strange new level because I was reading, and you've probably seen some of this too. It's like some companies were discovering that their full time employees had a whole other full time job at another <laughs> company. Like, it's like, because when you're on Zoom, I guess that can happen. It was just like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> no, and, and that makes total sense because you don't actually need to be in the office nine to five. You're, you're not constantly working. So you could theoretically multitask <laughs> yeah some people are just really that driven to be doing that and I, I think that somehow they were pulling it off for a long time before yeah, no, I, I couldn't do it <laughs> I know I couldn't either exactly it's like you have to breathe and that many zoom calls I think would really you know do me in because I'm not really one yeah. of those who can just sit all day on zoom like the, oh the movie Wally I was thinking of that because we were in Disneyland with our kids recently and I don't know if you ever saw the movie Wally, but it's like these people that are just sitting in front of screens it's like a futuristic movie they're sitting in front of screens and they're just in these chairs kind of moving along and they just get fatter and fatter because they're drinking sodas while they're just on screens all the time and it was like I don't know how many years ago this movie was but it was like was that like a prophetic movie about the future (laughs) because in some ways I feel like in COVID that was our lives for a year and a half yeah I have COVID-15 I gained 15 pounds these two years. (laughs) So true. My gosh. Wow. So you spent time as a defense and aerospace journalist. Tell us about that. And what did you learn during that time? Oh my gosh. So that was a complete and total accident. I started my career actually at a newspaper in Bangalore and, you know, I didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't good culture. I wanted, I I loved the work itself, but the culture didn't resonate with me. And, um, and I was thinking, what do I do? Like, cause I, I love journalism, but what do I do? And I, and someone somewhere, you know, they emailed me and said, hey, you know, this website is looking for journalists. Do you want to interview? And I said, they're never going to hire me. I have, I don't have a background in, in defense and aerospace, but the interview went fantastic. The editor and I, we hit it off. And yeah, two weeks later I was starting and it was quite the learning curve. And I look back and, you know, I didn't recognize it at the time, but now I do. I'm so grateful for my editor because he really took me under his wings, educated me, mentored me, taught me the ropes. And if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have survived that first year because I had no idea what people were talking about. Like, I'm sorry, what is an RFP? What does an engine do? Radars? I don't know. What are these words? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. But- I, I fell in love. It was um, absolutely rewarding. I learned so much. I met fantastic people. Give me an opportunity to travel the world. You know, what more could I ask for? That's incredible. What a very unique experience that you had there. And I yeah. assume that some of that learning, number one, it was obviously the grateful, you know, the gratitude of having this person who mentored you and also just the the way that taught you how to lead and do that for the next person is so valuable. But absolutely. the very specific aspects of learning about defense and aerospace as a journalist 
my assumption is that played into your book in some form or fashion in this latest book that you've written. So tell us about it. Right. So a lot of defense and aerospace journalism, um, everything that's happening today is incredibly futuristic. When, um, let's say, the United States buys an airplane or they're building something, it's meant to be used in the future. You know, it's from concept to launch, it's going to be 15, 20 years in the future. So it was easy for me to write the book from that aspect because that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to think about what is the aerospace industry going to look like 50, 60 years from now? So a, a lot of the book has incredibly futuristic technology that is already in production right now. Um, but it's not central to the story. What's central to the story is the concept of race in the future. You know, how do we as humans think of racial identity five, 600 years from now? And the answer is, well, we don't because 600 years from now, we're probably so completely intermixed and racial, you know, because of globalization, war, whatever. We're not gonna identify ourselves by the color of our skins. Um, and that's where, that's the story. It's that's so wonderful. Yeah, I love, I love the thought of it. I think that's what, you know, fiction can do for us. It can allow us to imagine a reality that doesn't exist yet and dream for it and work for it. And it sounds like that's the kind of book that you've written for us to, to you know, activate our imaginations of what we could do now to be the kind of change makers, to create a world and a society everywhere we live where people aren't judged by the color of their skin. So yeah. I assume that you being an immigrant here in the United States was a factor in this. Tell us about your experience of being an immigrant and how it played into this book. You know, I think California is the most wonderful place I've ever lived in. This is where I feel or have ever felt most at home, where I feel like I, I can really fit in, have a community, friends. But on the other hand, it's also where I've experienced the most racism. Wow. Right. Um, I've experienced it within my immediate circle of friends at work, at the grocery store. It's sometimes so small. It takes me like a couple of days to even like think back and think, oh, wait a second. That wasn't right. Um, and, and I this idea for the story, it just, you know, it cropped up at a time where I was experiencing it a lot more. And I get so emotional talking about it because. Um, that time in my life was just really challenging. And I, and my husband is German, he's white. And, and I just didn't have the vocabulary to explain to him what I was feeling and why these things weren't right. Mm. Because he can sympathize with me, but he doesn't walk in my shoes. He has no idea what it's like um, to feel this way. And, and so that was essentially the idea for the book. And I was saying, oh my gosh, you know, 50, 60 years from now, you know, America is going to be, I mean, Caucasians will probably be the minority. And I was on this, you know, really angry tangent. And, and that was the book. And I said, you know, we're not talking about it because we're not thinking about it. This is what the world is going to be like. Mm. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, already for the younger generation, you know, it already is that way for, yeah. you know, younger ones. Um, so it's only a matter of time before that that scenario are, is starting to play out, right? And so it's, it's happening, like you said. So I'm, I'm really just want to say I'm so sorry that you have experienced that here in California. And I hear that story over and over again. I think it's shocking to a lot of people that even in the Bay Area, which is considered, you know, a very inclusive environment um, where it's very diverse and all those things are true, but it also is true 
that there have been quite a few hate crimes against Asians in particular that either have just begun to be more often reported or are statistically the same as they always have been. They just are now only starting to be reported. And it's hard to know since they weren't actually reported. But the anecdotal information I get from a lot of my you know, Asian American friends is that these things have been going on for quite some time and, um, and we're hearing more about them. So what is your, um, what are your thoughts around some of the stop Asian and AAPI hate that's, you know, the, the awareness that's been raised. And I'd love to hear your thoughts as an immigrant and somebody who's experienced some of those things. First of all, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, the AAPI, I feel like something changed during the pandemic. You know, it was like a switch went off and people were like, I'm done. Like I'm done taking the shit. That's what it felt like. Um, Cause I have a ton of Asian friends and a lot of them really suffered. I want to say during the pandemic, like getting groceries was suddenly a challenge walking down the street because it was very much an in your face experience and my heart breaks for them. And I've had a few similar experiences but nothing at all compared to, to what they experienced. And I think what it really is, is that people are tired. We're tired of, you know, being berated on the streets, being challenged for being different and, and people are speaking up. I think there's this idea that there's a safe environment where I'm free to speak up my truth to, to explain what's happening to me. And, and there's, you know, freedom in being understood. And, and that's really been the tipping point, I think, acceptance. Yeah, um, you know, it, it was almost like we went through so many hard things during that time. And yeah. so I think that people can only take so much. So I'm mm -hmm. definitely hearing that same story from a lot of my friends who've experienced different things. Um, I mean, I have a, a dear friend who, you know, for years, their family way back have been here in California. And she many years ago was walking down the street in their neighborhood in Santa Clara with her daughter and somebody yelled at them, go back to where you came from, which the daughter interpreted to mean, go back to your house. The Santa Clara. <laughs> yeah, and so I was like, oh, but then it was like her mom knew it meant something else. And it's like yeah. that awful conversation a mom has to have with the daughter who's been born and raised here. And you know, her mom has too, but it's like, and it's the Bay Area. So you don't expect mm -hmm. that because there's you know so much awareness in so many circles around mm -hmm. that, but then there are still particular ones that aren't. And so that diversity includes the people who also, you know, overtly express a lot of racism and hatred and vitriol to the point of yelling at a total stranger, all, you know, all of that. And so, yeah, it's just heartbreaking that those are the kind of conversations that parents are having to have with children, even now in 2021, I hate that. Yeah. But when I think about your book and I think about this, you know, beautiful scenario that could be if we did the work both individually and systemically and had these kind of more vulnerable, authentic conversations where we can be real with people who are different from us. I think that's a path forward. Does your book address anything about that in the book about how it got to be that way? So I imagine that, you know, it was just honestly the example of my husband and I, and I was saying, you know, if we had kids and those kids had other kids and, you know, they might, and all of our friends are either immigrants or Americans or and I was saying, and if they married each other and they had other kids, what would they be? I, I don't know. They would probably just be American, right? Because like, what are you going to say? I'm 25% Indian, 5% German. I, I don't know. Like, can you imagine how ridiculous that will be? 
And I said, no, at some point we're just going to start saying we're Americans and there's no, there won't be a follow-up question saying, but where are you really from? Because everyone is the same and yet different. Um, and I, but I also think for this scenario to really come to pass, um, you know, there's, people are going to travel a lot more. I think, I mean, I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to spoil it for readers, but I think there are certain things that have to happen in our future for it to be complete one world, as I, as I phrase it. But also in that scenario, I think um, it's not going to be a true one world because in the book, I imagine that there are going to be certain groups of people who hold on to their ideas of being pure-blooded and essentially how those communities fit into the larger world because, you know, the scales have tipped and now you're the minority and this is, you know, what the rest of the world looks like. So how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, no, that's fascinating to think about. You know, um, in the U.S., we have this holiday, you know, Thanksgiving, that has various narratives around the what actually happened right. and what actually yeah. led up to that. So, in, you know, some you know schools in the U.S., it'll still be taught that the Puritans were, you know, that the whole idea of Puritan only related to like a pure form of their faith, being able to practice religious freedom, but it. But it turns out the more full picture of that is that many of the Puritans believed that they were a pure race, that it wasn't mm-hmm. only about faith, that it also had this additional kind of nefarious element yeah. that um, wasn't related to their faith at all. In fact, it went quite against their faith to believe that they had a pure race by being, you know, so-called white right. skin. I don't yeah. know if that's what they called it at the time, but that, um, and so that there was a superiority complex with these, you know, white British and European individuals that came and that something surrounding that Thanksgiving story were not exactly cute and like you would make little dolls out of it. I mean, yes, there were good moments, but there's a lot of nuance there. And so, yeah, I'd be interested to know as a, an immigrant from India and having lived in other countries and Dubai and everything um, and living now in the States for the last several years, like what is your perspective on that? And what have you heard that you think is good and bad and all of that? So I really struggle with Thanksgiving. When I first got here, I was so excited. I thought, oh my gosh, this is, you know, like the quintessential American thing. Or we did Friendsgiving with friends. And 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 then I started to educate myself. I was watching documentaries, reading books, and I realized, oh boy, this is not what I expected it to be um, at all. And the more I read and the more I learned, I, I just cannot you know, digest the idea of sitting down and having a meal and celebrating this holiday that was actually so painful for so many thousands of people who are already living in this country. Um, I mean, that breaks my heart and I can't reconcile the fact that we're celebrating essentially the genocide of, of the Native Americans. Um, yeah, that's where I'm at with Thanksgiving right now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Um... You know, I think sometimes it's shocking to a lot of uh, particular Americans who've been raised in a system that was only taught the one version of the story, which is why on the World of Difference podcast, we love to get the different perspectives because we don't, no one has the only perspective that for all time, for all, you know, people of any particular thing, it's like we can all watch the same accident happen on this 
street and my perspective being on the left side of the road, somebody's perspective being on the right side of the road and somebody being in the car or behind the car in front of the car, we're all going to have slightly different perspectives. And so hearing all the perspectives will get a more full picture of actually what happened. And so it's hard to do with history all these years later, but piecing together the historical evidence, piecing together the oral history of so many Native Americans who are still speaking up about this and Indigenous peoples, um, as well as looking at the original sources, you know, from the Puritans themselves, which seem to educate, these are the things they were writing and saying about themselves. Yeah, I I think that one thing we can all center around is just gratitude, gratitude that after COVID we're alive, we're breathing, gratitude that we have food on the table when Mm -hmm. so many are unemployed still in this recession and, um, you know, women in particular suffering by, you know, this she session, they call it a woman having to leave work so they could school their kids at home because families. So just, I think centering around just gratitude is so. That's a good way to think about it. Um, And we can have different perspectives. I think that if there was anything, if there were a handful of good things that happened around that original Thanksgiving meal, um, it would have been people from very different perspectives being able to eat together mm-hmm. and celebrating a harvest, you know, at that point. Um, my experience living overseas, and I'm sure you had this too, is that when you sit down with people in a country that's not your own and you eat food that's from their land that is provided and there is something beautiful about that that feels like the good parts of Thanksgiving, that we can be yeah. from totally different continents um, and share this meal and be grateful for that relationship. If for nothing else, hopefully that is one thing we can somewhat maintain. <laughs> no, that's. I think that's a really lovely way to look at it um, because, my gosh, we do have so much to be grateful for this year. Um, the last couple of years, really, we're healthy, so lots of silver lining. So, yeah, you're right. I, I like that. Yeah, but it's not to be tur- turkey. Not everybody's into that. <laughs> no, I, I don't like turkey. It's not my yeah, word. <laughs> exactly. No, it's funny because um, we, uh, several years ago, my family, you know, we lived in Asia for most of our raising of our children. So for my husband and I, it was 20 years of living there. But we had particular times when we would be back in the United States for our job-related things. Um, and there was one particular Thanksgiving Um, maybe about four years ago that we happened to be in the States. We were here in the Bay Area. And so we were like, oh, should we make some like American Thanksgiving food for this dinner? Which, you know, in Asia, we, our kids didn't get off school for that or anything. So it was always never on the day if you did celebrate with other Americans. And so we're like, yeah, we our kids are off school right now. Let's just do the thing. But we lived in, um, in Cupertino at the time. And so, you know, most of our neighbors were Asian American. And there was a little girl who was friends of our kids. And she would always just knock on the door and be like, hey, can your kids come to the park to play? So she happened to knock on the door that day and walk inside. And um, the, her family is vegetarian, right? Because they're Hindu and they're from India. And she came and she saw this big turkey sitting on our table. And I thought she was going to pass out. I felt so bad. I was like, you're welcome to sit here. But she's like, did you guys literally just cook a bird? <laughs> I know it felt so bad. It's like, Mm, cross-cultural right now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. That, is, that is like the horrifying parts of it. But I think the beauty of my experience of being overseas and there were things I ate that I would have ordinarily never put in my mouth only because I didn't want to be rude. And I wanted to like be respectful of people at their oh table or at the restaurant where they invite. I mean, I've eaten so many. You things. are a better woman than I am. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I just fake it and say, oh, you know, I'm not feeling so good today. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I have, yeah. I have allergies. 
<laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. No, it's true. I mean, some in some cases you can do that. I think in more urban environments like Singapore, I could get away with it. But in like rural Sumatra, it was like, I'm just going to no. eat an ox brain. I mean, it's just oh, weird. <laughs> like, yeah, like, okay, I'll just eat it. Unless I was pregnant. And then I was always off the hook for that because they were very much into like, what is your baby craving? You can eat that. And if your baby doesn't want something, it's totally fine. So I never got off the hook unless I was pregnant. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, yeah. know. I know. Oh my gosh. I struggle. Like, I think if you put something exotic in front of me, I don't know if I, I would be brave enough. <laughs> <laughs> I do have my limits, I will say, but I've tried things I wouldn't have ordinarily tried. And some of them have been good, surprisingly. Okay. And others are like, Hmm, I don't think I'll ever order that again. That's slimy. <laughs> so. I want to pause here for a moment to let you know about an art gallery in Austin, Texas called Wild Gallery. That's www.wild.gallery. And if you don't live in Austin, Texas, they ship nationwide. And art is just one of those great Christmas gifts that you could buy for a loved one. But also around this time of year when we've celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day in October, when we've had um, Thanksgiving in November, and a lot of us have recognized over the last several years that a lot of the narratives around Thanksgiving in the United States and Canada have not told the full story from the perspective of Native Americans in particular about really what was occurring around that original Thanksgiving and all the circumstances surrounding it. One of the many ways we can incorporate the voices of Native Americans into our history and into our lives so we understand their perspective is by buying art by Native American artists. So Wild Gallery in Austin, Texas features art of all price points. They have original fine art, prints, and posters, and they feature artists such as one of my favorites, which is J. Nicole Hatfield. And she has a, a painting called Sacred, which is highlighting the fact that Native American women are more than 10 times more likely than the rest of the population to be murdered. J. Nicole Hatfield's paintings are sold at Wild Gallery. She's a Comanche and Kiowa tribes, and she started painting at the age of 15 and is very talented. So if you're looking for Christmas gifts, if you're looking for a way to incorporate uh, Native American voices and their perspectives into your life, go to wildgallery.com. And wild is spelled, once again, W-Y-L-D. So check it out. Well, I'd love to know in your travels of living in, you know, Dubai, you lived in Bangalore, now you've lived here. What are some of the things from different cultures that you've appreciated that have, you know, maybe you have incorporated into your own life or just they taught you something? Um, you know, growing up in Dubai, I, I think I was incredibly sheltered. And I didn't quite realize it until I moved to India. And, um, and it's funny, I was having this conversation with my colleague this morning the concept of personal space, it doesn't really exist in India because everyone's just living on top of each other. And in Dubai, all you have is space, right? Like people will, you know, walk two feet away if you're walking down the street or, you know, if you're in the kiosk at an ATM, they'll respectfully wait outside. In India, that doesn't really happen. And, and you know, the older I get, the more I'm grateful for my personal space. And I'm realizing how much I need it when I'm out in the world, especially with COVID. Um, and that's the first thing that came to my mind, surprisingly. Yeah, that's a big one. Personal space yeah. is so cultural. My yeah. um, my son the other day when we were at Disneyland, because my children all, they present as just straight up white kids. You know, nobody knows that they only moved to America two years ago and they 
you know, they learned Mandarin in their school growing up in Singapore and they lived in Indonesia and Singapore. They, people just think they've been in California their whole lives, right? <laughs> so when we were at Disneyland, they the parade where they do the fireworks or whatever, mm-hmm. um, there was a white lady next to my um, one of my sons and she got really mad at him and said he was rude um, because he was too close to her. But like he's lived in Asia for so long in Singapore mm-hmm. and Indonesia where the personal space is more, you know, close because there's yeah. so many people and it's just a cultural thing. And so he didn't realize that she was, he, I, I wonder if he had looked like he wasn't white, if she might've let him off the hook, but it's like, you know, better, you know, like you're, you're a white mm-hmm. kid. You should know what our personal space is, but I'm not sure he actually <laughs> did. Oh my gosh. Wow. So do you think he realized later on what was happening or? His sister made sure he understood. I think she picked up on what was happening, but even for her, I'm not sure she fully understood. So I had to be like, yeah, they see you as an insider in this culture, whether you see yourself that way or not. So it's almost like you're, um, you're not going to be given the same amount of grace, I guess, because it looks like you should know this. You should know all about Thanksgiving and you should love mashed potatoes and you should, you know, my kids are still learning a lot about what it means to be white American, <laughs> because I'm sure you relate to this, right? When you've lived in Dubai and, you know, people, you know, people look at you and they assume who you are, but when you've lived in a bunch of places, it's all kind of hidden inside of you. You know who you are, but other people may not. And so, yeah, like even you being married to a white German, people might assume if they see you out that your, your whole family is Indian, you know, like the, the assumptions that people make, um, it can be quite hard. You know, you feel quite misunderstood at times. I'm sure you've had those experiences. Yeah. And primarily in India, I will say in, in Dubai, I, I think it was a lot more, it was a lot easier. It was a lot easier to fit in, to have easy conversations in India. I, I really struggled. And I think it was a lot to do with being a woman you know, um, like, why are you wearing a skirt? Like, why are you wearing high heels? It's a Tuesday. It, it doesn't make any sense to them. But this is how I was raised. And I don't think twice about it. Um, yeah, like with the personal space, that was a real shock to me because I didn't expect people to get quite so riled up about, you know, like, come on, get closer. And I was like, why? The door's going to slam me in the face when someone comes out. Like, the, the lines aren't going to move any faster if we're standing closer <laughs> together. And, and they did not care because, you know, you're a woman, you be quiet and just move along, like I told you. And I, and I was like, no, th- this is ridiculous, no. Um, but it was things like that that I really struggled with was renting houses in India because apparently being a single woman looking at apartments is a red flag. And they're like, yeah, where's your husband? Where's your father? Where's your brother? I'm like, I have none of the above. And it was being constantly told, well, we only rent to decent young women. And I was like, what does decent young women mean? I am a decent person. I'm educated. I have a full-time job. But yeah, it was challenging. It was incredibly challenging to live in India, being an Indian woman, even. Yeah. So um, I assume that for me, it's been a little bit about what you're describing. And my kids would say the same. Being in a country that looks like where you're from when you've not lived there very much can be one of the hardest places for people who've lived the expat life or what we call the third culture kid life Mm -hmm. where you've grown up outside your passport country. And so, um, but as a woman in India in particular, I'm imagining a lot of scenarios in your um, experience of having gone to live in India as someone who looked like they belonged and were born and raised there your whole life. What did you feel like the expectations on you were as an Indian woman? Uh, To be quiet, to be traditional, to not work. Probably it was, there was 
this constant i don't know like pressure i felt to to assimilate to fit in and and do what all of the other kids were doing which was you know get a masters degree um get married not work get married you you graduate you get married and then you have babies it was you know even reading certain books was you know concerning to to my family it was like wait is that what you're reading and i was like yeah it's just it's, it's just a book like nothing to panic about and and also was my family is catholic and that's all i ever knew my friends were mostly muslim because i grew up in dubai very few hindu friends so when i moved to india i wasn't familiar with all of these hindu festivals and customs like I don't know why they celebrate Diwali or Holi, and and you know I I still don't. I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie. Um, <laughs> right. So when people ask me, yeah, what are you doing for Diwali? I'm like nothing, and, and there's just shock. What? Aren't you Indian? I'm like yeah, but I'm Catholic or I'm atheist now. But I'm I, I was raised Catholic. Yeah. So it was sort of this expectation to conform to what an Indian woman should. present as and and I did not in any way shape or form I mean I was working as a journalist I lived alone I didn't have any sort of male figure in my life and that was all very concerning to my neighbors my you know my distant family members it was like what's happening what's wrong are you broken um and that was incredibly challenging yeah it must be i mean every yeah. culture has expectations on what it means to be a woman but every patriarchal culture in particular expects women to varying degrees of a spectrum to be small in some mm-hmm. way to take up yeah. less space either physically or you know career wise mm-hmm. or with your voice like both the sound of your voice and what you say mm-hmm. and how much you say like all of those things are usually a part of it and i would say you know around the world people um have varying degrees of that but my experience of my friends who are indian women you know talk about the particular nuances of india and how that can be very difficult to walk through so mm-hmm. as you have processed that and live in the states now we have a large indian community here in the bay area lots of indian friends here and um yeah how do you how do you perceive that now and how do you walk through that as a woman who looks like an indian woman in the bay area in california <laughs> the north you know in yeah. california <laughs> I honestly have no idea there's nothing that I've consciously done I have very few indian friends um I honestly if I'm being really truthful my time in india was incredibly traumatic and painful and I and I just could not wait to get out of there so when I did finally leave I really wanted nothing to do with india like I don't watch the movies I don't listen to music and I had at the time very few indian friends and I was incredibly selective about the people I was letting into my life because i just didn't want to go through that sort of you know i didn't want to be judged and critiqued for being different for not conforming and and i'm glad to say that i do have indian friends now and you know i think we're closely matched in our beliefs and our culture our culture of being inclusive forgiving for talking about our you know our mental states which was never something i could do in india so i've been incredibly selective about who I'm letting into my life while I'm here because I'm not going through that again. Yeah, no, that's that sounds really wise on your part to do. Not everybody can hold space for those types of traumatic feelings and my experience of walking through any version of trauma big or small is that 
Um, it's those conversations we have that help us walk through what that was all about, how it, how we carry it in our bodies, you know, whether it was a physical type of trauma or not, you still carry it in your body and yeah. you can be in situations years later, 15 years later, even, and it will kind of trigger you even physically yeah. sometimes to, to have a memory that flashes you back a little bit. Um, but we do, not everybody can hold that space because not everybody is trauma informed enough to know how. Yeah. But there are those people we need to select in our lives. And we've gone through something hard like that, that can hold that space for us for however many times we need to have that flashback mm -hmm. be talked about. Cause it's in the talking about it and letting that out that we kind of find more healing. So I'm glad you have people like that in your life here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, me too. I mean, I recognize that it's a lot of pressure to put on 1.3 billion people. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, I got to pick and choose. I really do. I'm not, I'm not ready to, to jump back in. I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to India. I'm just not there yet. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly different because for somebody like me to walk into India, there would never be the same expectations. It would, you know, I would always be assumed to be different. It would be okay if I were, I mean, there are going to be norms yeah. that everybody's expected to adhere to, but the, you know, the playing field I would be able to plan would be much larger than sure. the yeah. one they were giving to you. And so uh, hopefully, and, uh, you know, at, as you process it, um, it'll continue to be a space where you can be honest and authentic about what that experience was like for you and to uh, find space for others who are experiencing it. That's been my journey of anything I've gone through that's been difficult is that as I've walked through healing and I'm still in process with a few things myself, even now, it's allowed me to have space for others who hurt because it can either make you close off and never want to talk about it and never let other people talk about painful things because you just don't want to deal. Or you can become the kind of person that says, you know what, I've been through hard things too. Let me listen to you and, and have you yeah. walk through that. I think this is something incredibly important for the Indian community. We don't often talk about our feelings. We're all about suppression and being strong. And, you know, somehow the burden we bear is, is like, a, I don't know, like a, a medal. Like, oh my gosh, she's been through so much. So she is amazing. And, and that doesn't have to be the case. And I wish that more people would be open about, you know, having a bad day even or a bad week, something is not going right. Like, I, I want to listen. I want to hear you out and see if I can help you. But I think as, as a people, we're, we're not very in touch with our feelings. Yeah, it can be hard. Certain cultures are better at it than others, I would say. Yeah. Um, and then you find within cultures, particular spaces where it's allowed and where it isn't. And I will say with all the difficulties of the patriarchy, on occasion, it's women's circles in some cultures where that is insert, within certain parameters, a little more likely. Um, I would say my experience in general, not everywhere, but some of the spaces around men where they're not allowed to cry, that's what it means to be a man or right. being strong and never being yeah. weak. Like shame is all around being weak for a lot of men in right. the patriarchy. And women are the first to say, sometimes like it's the wives and the daughters and the sisters that reinforce those stereotypes around the men, which keep them living in shame. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, I was, I'm doing this new thing now when someone asks me how I'm doing and I answer honestly, I no longer say I'm great, I'm good, everything's perfect. I, you know, oh, maybe I'm a little anxious today or oh, a little bit low. And I was um, chatting with a friend yesterday and I asked her how she was doing. 
And, you know, she, she was talking about how she's doing, she's anxious, all of these things going on. And she said, oh, and I feel like the men at work never feel this way. They're never overwhelmed. They're never burned out. And I said, you know, that's not true. This is toxic masculinity. This is the patriarchy at work. They're probably feeling a lot more pressure than we realize. And they just, they don't know how to, you know, share that, how to communicate, like what words would they use? And, and I feel so sad because she and I can talk about it, but who are the men talking to? Probably nobody. Yeah, it's, it's so hard. And there's a lot of pressure. I, um, I'm, you know, for the most part, I would say as a woman, I have to fight harder twice as hard sometimes as a man to get the same kind of results in career or life in general (laughs) and to get the interview or any of those things. But at the same time, that is one particular, you know, I'll, I'll often tell my daughter, like, this is, these are one of the few female privileges we have is that even if it's hard to share who we are and we have a lot of shame when it comes to being a woman around being perfect and all those things are really hard, but for men, it really is in some ways, you know, even, even more difficult. Yeah. But I find it very, you know, strange. Like you talked about growing, you growing up Catholic and you're atheist. Now, one of the things that really, I find so strange is people, men who claim to follow Jesus. And when I read about Jesus, I'm sure you did as a child. Um, he very much displayed his feelings. Like one of the so I don't know if you remember this but from growing up in any of your like church classes, but one of the favorite verses of when I was growing up of the kids to memorize is the shortest verse in the Bible, which is two words and it's Jesus wept. So if there was ever like, you have to memorize the Bible verses, we, people would choose that one. Cause it's like the shortest one, the one. <laughs> yeah. but it's like, wow, can you imagine like, this is the person that everybody's worshiping that he's a model for how to live life. And that's, that's the whole concept. But he wept, right? He wept and he, there's more than one story of Jesus crying. There's a story of him being angry. There's um, sadness. And I think that sometimes the feelings most often we are not allowing each other to have are things like anger, fear, and sadness. And yet we see even Jesus displayed those. So I find it really sad, especially for men that they're not often given the space to do that because my understanding is that humans are all looking for connection, that that's essentially what most of us are longing for. And the best way to find connection is that vulnerability to say, you know what, it's life's really hard right now, or I'm struggling with my child, or I, you know, mental health issues, like maybe I have depression and you want to tell somebody about that, like that kind of connection, it gives you a different level with people. And so it makes me, you know, I lament that in our society. And I hope that that's something whether your book is going to help us do that or whatever, that, that we get to the point where we don't judge people by their skin color, right? We don't think um, one gender is better than another. Yeah. Um, where you're born shouldn't matter as, as to who you are and what you can contribute now. Um, how much is in your bank account? Should it make a difference? Yeah. But it really, you know, we should all be able to be vulnerable because when it means to be human is that we all struggle and there's a lot of nuance, good and bad in our lives. Yeah, I feel like for the longest time, um, I, I was going through this phase where everything sucked, like everything was breaking and everything was falling apart. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, why is life so hard? Is it just me? And it felt like it was just me. Like, I'm the only, I honestly felt like I was the only one in the world with all of these problems. And then I moved here to California and um, we had this new person joining the team and she's Indian. And she brought this presentation to talk about, you know, her background and how she works, her working style. And the very last slide, she said, you know, I want you to just take a moment and remember that everybody has struggles in their lives. Mm -hmm. You may not see it. They look totally perfect. They look happy, 
but everyone is struggling. This is not a lie. And it hit me like a truck. And I was, I was thinking, oh my gosh, is that true? Is everybody around me struggling? And then I started to ask people, yeah, how, how are you really doing? Like, what's going on? And people opened up and I, and I realized it's, it's not just me. And that was powerful. That felt, I felt, I don't know, connected. Um, like it was just solitude, just knowing that it's, it's not just me. I'm not the only one. And that yeah. was life-changing. Right now I walk into a room and I'm already assuming, you know, I don't know what's going on in their lives, but I'm just going to be more gracious, more gentle. Mm. You know, I'm going to give, I'm going to cut them a slack for being 10 minutes late. Cause I don't know, maybe their kids were acting up or car troubles. Cause I've had all of those because I, you know, I'm late, not because I'm an asshole, but because I have car trouble. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Or the traffic was just horrendous mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, yeah. which is kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, that's a great posture. I agree. That's the power of me too, right? Um, When we find that connection and that was why that hashtag went so viral because people had had that shame hidden for so many years. And then it was like, wait, oh my gosh, me too. You know, there's power power in that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, I'd love to get a chance to ask you this question that everybody in our series on the Changemaker series I'm asking And that is, do you have people in your life, either authors you've read about or just activists or people you've followed that have been change makers in some way that have inspired you to be who you are or to write or to go into your career or just anything? Is there somebody that you have found inspirational as a change maker that we should know about? You know who it is? I think it might be right now in this moment, it's Padma Lakshmi. She is um, an author. She is the host of, um, I'm forgetting the name of her TV show, um, something with chef and a top chef, that's it. Um, but what really, you know, draws me to her is the fact that she is a Tamilian, like I am. And she's really setting the world on fire. Like she has this biracial kid whom she's raising to love food and she's, you know, exploring different cultures. And, and she inspires me. Like when I grow up, that's who I want to be. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it so much. What is it about her that you really resonate with and you're trying to kind of add into your own life? You know, I think it's honestly the fact that she is a, a woman and two Tamilian, because typically when you think of Indians, you maybe think North Indians and North Indian food, but Tamilians, we never really shine. You know, I, I'd never known any other Tamilians who were trailblazers, who were accomplishing things that you were hearing about in the news or hosted documentaries and she is doing all of it and she's bringing her own sense of power feminism and and she inspires me like you know I look at her and I think you are everything I want to be like she she is not afraid to speak her mind I love that that's awesome yeah I'll definitely have to check her out and be inspired as well I definitely know that there have been so many women and men in my own life people I've known personally or people I've watched from afar like her that have given me you know language around how to word particular things Mm -hmm. or just a posture of how to be in a room and to let my light shine that that I believe God has given me and we all have these God-given gifts to shine and we're not supposed to hide them underneath a bush or you know it's supposed to be a way that we can all contribute to make a difference in the world. And the more lights that shine together, the brighter it is, right? So yeah, people like that, absolutely. they really can inspire us to 
to be who we were meant to be and to not try to be small. And I often think of, I'm not sure if you watch the show Ted Lasso, but it's, we watched it twice. <laughs> it's great. All the cross-cultural stuff. You should watch it. It's on Apple TV. Um, but this American guy, Ted Lasso goes to London to coach. And so it's a lot of the you know, British versus American culture, which is really fun. But then there's, you know, there's a Nigerian player on the team. So there's some additional cultural things. But, um, you know, one of the things that happens is there's a woman who owns the football club. Mm-hmm. And there's a part where she talks about <laughs> how when, before she goes into a meeting with all these men, because she's the only woman that she literally like goes down with her body and, and raises up and like puts her arms out really wide and like growls like an animal <laughs> to like practice being bigger in the room. Cause you're always meant, you're made to feel so small, especially when you're the only woman. And it's like her way of actually literally taking up a little more space. We just laugh because we watched it round two. My husband and I watched it with my daughter to like, cause she loves all that cross-cultural stuff. But, um, but yeah, we just laughed out loud about that. Cause it's kind of silly to think about doing but at the same time, there are people that show us what it looks like to not be afraid of how your talents and gifts can bless the world. Absolutely. And I think what really pulls me to Padma Lakshmi is that she is an incredibly beautiful, sensuous woman. Mm. And living in India, I always felt like I had to cover myself up, had mm. to dress a little bit manlier, put a little bit you know, less makeup so I wasn't being sexualized, even going down to the supermarket. And, and I see her and she is not afraid to be who she is. Like she is 52 years old, but she is incredibly gorgeous. And I think I'm 30. Why, why am I so afraid? It's like, I was 21 and probably the best shape of my life. And I was so afraid of, you know, wearing a skirt in public or a sleeveless top and so stupid. I look back and it was so stupid to be afraid. And she's not afraid. Yes, I think as women, we do need those women in our lives that show Mm -hmm. us, you know what, Um, when God created woman, my understanding is God said about both Adam and Eve that they were both very good and they were both made in God's image and um, and that God makes beautiful things. God created Mm -hmm. the mountains and the oceans and the sea creatures and all of it. And it's so beautiful. So um, we look and we're in awe about God's creation. It's okay to be in awe about God's creation in the form of man and woman too. We don't have to hide that either. And um, obviously different cultures have different ideas about what it means to be pure and what you're supposed to cover up. We don't all walk around like yeah. people in Erie and Jaya yeah. with no clothes on. I mean, everybody yeah. has to do that appropriately, but at the same time, um, there is a lot of, you know, misogyny involved in some of the expectations around women. It's okay for us to be beautiful and mm-hmm. that we can celebrate who we are in that way, in an appropriate way. And I'm sure, you know, every culture has the nuance there and pushing those boundaries as an Indian woman has to be challenging. I've, I've faced that living in Muslim cultures under Islamic law, Sharia law. It's, yeah. it's a very, it's a huge challenge. But I, I resonate so much with what you're saying, because I've had women in my life that showed me how to do that well, that, you know, it's not about never wearing makeup. Some, you know, some women, they choose that, but to, to feel forced into that, to feel like you can never show your body in any way, um, especially like when I, you know, I played sports and it's like, there's, you know, there's a lot of conversation even now around the, you know, Olympic teams and the different yep. standards of what bathing suits can and can't be. So I think right. all of those are conversations to push us forward into hopefully a better society that your book is talking about. Um, it's okay to be a woman. It's okay to be a sensual woman. It's mm-hmm. okay to be a beautiful woman yeah. because we need to celebrate who we are. And I love that you've seen that. And I had an example. 
I definitely have people like that that have shown me. And I hope that for the younger generation of little Indian girls and um, girls everywhere that we can show them that it's okay. You know, obviously uh, that's a lot of the conversation around hashtag me too, right? That it felt Mm -hmm. unsafe for some women to be beautiful, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I always felt like I was um, hiding behind a helmet, um, a scarf, you know, something. I mean, I, I love wearing skirts and high heels and and I often often felt ridiculous. Like, why are you wearing high heels? Like, would you have a hot date? And like, no, just coming into the office. No, it's not a big deal. It was, it was little things that, that struck me as odd. And I, over time, thought, oh my gosh, I got to dress more conservatively because I don't want to draw attention to myself because it's not safe. But, you know, these are the best years of my life and I, I don't want to hide anymore. Good for you. Good for you. Celebrate who you are. I think you're a wonderful person. Um, I'm, I look forward to reading your book and hearing your thoughts come through fiction. And um, I'm sure you'll be writing more. So we want to continue to follow you and your thoughts. Where can people find you to see more of your writing and what you're doing on social media? Right. So you can buy Corinth 264280. That's what the book is called on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, several bookstores across the U.S. have it. So just walk in and ask for a copy. You can follow me on Instagram. It's author Bindia Schaefer. That's B-I-N-D-I-Y-A Bindia. On Twitter, it's just at Bindia Schaefer. And same on Facebook. Wonderful. Yes. Everybody follow her because she's going to be writing more and more. I'm really excited to see what else you put out there. One last question because our family is a camping family and I noticed that you are too. Where do you like to go camping? Where's one of your favorite places? Oh my gosh, Big Sur. Big Sur is one of our favorite spots. Yeah. Uh, oh my Which campground do you go there? We don't go to a campground. Okay. We disperse camp. We just drive up the mountain, find a spot and camp. Um, another good spot is Stanislaus. Okay. National, yes. National Forest? National Park? Yeah. Yeah. Re- really, really beautiful. Yeah. We don't do campgrounds. We, we disperse camp. Love it. That's awesome. Yes. We're so blessed here in California with not only a beautiful ocean, but cliffs in addition to the ocean. We always drive down the coast and we just think this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Where do you guys camp? Um, we have not camped on the beach so far. We've camped in a lot of Yosemite and my husband, he's addicted to Yosemite. Um, we also went like further up near Redding in that area. Mm-hmm. There's some really mm-hmm. beautiful places, but, um, we've always wanted to do big sur and so that's next on our list so we're gonna we're definitely highly highly recommended thank you oh my gosh you love it (laughs) we will well it's great to get to know you let's keep in touch and try to have coffee sometime everybody follow bindia and read her upcoming book tell us the name of your book again my book is corinth 26 42 80 All right. We will link it in the show notes so all of you can find it and buy it and read it and be inspired about a society that we can make a world of difference to create together. Great to meet you, Vindia. You too, Lori. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. What a gift Bendia has given us today, just her vulnerability, her authenticity, her willingness to share stories from her own life that were parts of struggle, both in the past and that she's currently walking through. And it's just another one of the many reasons that we want to listen to the voices of the people around us, the people who live close to us in our communities and the people who live far 
because living this human life means that our perspective is not the only perspective. We can learn so much from others, especially people who are opposite of who we are, um, especially people who look different from us, have been raised in different places from us, who have different careers than us and interests than us, and it, it just informs us of how to live this human life in better ways. We're, we're just always trying to do better, aren't we, uh, here on the World of Difference podcast. I know that many of you are different and making a difference everywhere, and Bindia has really offered us this gift of her book, helping us to imagine a world where people are not judged by their skin color. Wouldn't it be wonderful? So check out her book. We'll put it in the show notes. Follow her writing. I'm sure she's going to be writing more. And, um, and enjoy the perspective that she brings. Somebody who was living in Bangalore, India, and looked like she belonged and then really didn't feel like she did. And now here in the Silicon Valley or in the San Francisco Bay Area, just, uh, you know, writing, camping, and um, offering us a perspective of somebody who made the jump from being a journalist into the corporate world and, uh, and just all the things she's learned through her life experience living in Dubai and the UAE. What a gift she's given us today of all these stories and the gift of imagination of what it could look like if we did better around this issue of, of um, judging people and, um, and learning to just accept people for who they are and listen to their perspective. Love it. Love it so much. She's incredible. And um, I hope that you will uh, follow her on all the spaces. We'll put her links in the show notes so you can follow her and uh, enjoy our guest next week, who is Christina Corpus, and she is running for sheriff in San Mateo here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area in California. If elected in June, on June 7th, I believe, she will become the first female sheriff in San Mateo and also would be, if elected, the first Latina sheriff in all of the state of California. So we are excited to have her on next week. Tune in next week for Christina Corpus and make a difference wherever you are. Bye. As we're finishing this episode, if you're thinking, I really wish I could learn more or go a little bit deeper. Well, that's what our Difference Maker community is for. I would love to welcome you in to join the rest of us there. Once again, um, it's only $5 a month to join the price of a latte at your local coffee shop. You can join at our Changers tier. Difference Makers is a community that really means so much to me. It's very special because each time I have a guest on the show, I record something um, outside of what we give to just the regular podcast audience where we go a little bit deeper and then I post those video episodes in this community and we can discuss them. But also at the very uh, beginning tier, which is our changers tier of this community, you'll get exclusive voting power and help pick podcast topics that give us you know, more of what we want from your perspective. You'll have access to exclusive um, 30 plus mini-sodes that aren't out there for the general public, and you'll get every month an exclusive monthly bonus mini-sode. At our Groundbreakers level, which is $10 a month, you can join and get all of that, but also priority access to submit questions to the podcast, and you'll get an additional two exclusive monthly bonus mini-sodes. And at our Trailblazers tier, which is $15 a month, the price of three lattes a month, um, you can get all of that 
plus also three exclusive monthly bonus minisodes um, and a patron shout out. So I would love for you to join us at any of those tiers. Um, it'll help you come into this community, be in the midst of all of us, other difference makers. And we'd love to hear your perspective. I certainly would. It's a place to engage more with me and the audience around what you like, what you're resonating with. And once again, go deeper with each of our guests. So please join us in this membership community. I would love to hear your perspective and love to share this extra content with you. So show up at patreon.com slash a world of difference.